you're listening to Girovagando, the cycling podcast at the 2021 Giro d'Italia, powered by Super Sapiens, energy management for committed athletes and coaches. Well, I don't really need to ask where we are, Daniel, because uh, we're, in the same, test you today. we're in the same place as last night, aren't we? Yeah, it seems very strange, Rich, to be just recording a podcast with no video. You've <laughs> 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 changed. Today, we um, dipped our toe in the very murky and well, shark-infested waters. Television's Daniel Freeman. Even deeper into the shark-infested waters of vlogging. The podcast with his <laughs> fancy TV equipment. Well, yeah, we've done a, a, a very short um, listeners' questions episode uh, on video. Eight minutes. Um, this will be longer. We're answering listeners' questions tonight. Prologue our traditional, length. yep, our traditional press conference episode. We'll do another one next rest day. Uh, what a pleasant rest day it's been, though. Yes, Rich. What a fantastic rest day. Uh, you know, we talked yesterday about Assisi. We're on. Well, we're under the Colle del Paradiso, the the Hill of Paradise again, under the Basilica of um, San Francesco. We did a bit of tourism today, didn't we? I, well, I spent a, the morning in the Londretta of Paradise. <laughs> yes, thank you very much for that. Um, I had a nice run up the Monte <laughs> Subasio, the mountain that overlooks Assisi, and I don't know how much we talked about it last night, but. It's very eerie um, in Assisi in the sense that it's usually overrun with tourists by this time of year. And it's like we've got the place to ourselves, which is, a, you know, a fantastic and it feels very, well, we feel very blessed. But on the other hand, it, it is slightly unnerving. It is. It's a shame to see so many businesses closed because, I mean, that's all there is. The businesses, shops, restaurants, so on. Some restaurants open, but a lot a lot closed. Hopefully that will change soon. Yeah, and then... You know, we talked a bit last night about these Umbrian towns and, you know, which ones we particularly like. Um, Assisi is one that, you know, I've never been that fond of just because of the tourists, I have to say. Um, in summer, it's absolutely overrun and, and it's one of those places where every sort of second shop is a souvenir shop. And consequently, there's a there's a kind of hipsters um, Assisi, which is Gubbio which is a little bit harder to get to, not quite as many uh, really sort of storied, famed monuments. But today, and at the moment, in Assisi, you've got the best of all worlds because you've got these the incredible basilicas. And, and um, you know, today we saw the, the, the frescoes that I was talking about in the pod last night that were rebuilt piece together, piece by piece, after the 1997 earthquake. I was watching some videos on um, YouTube earlier of, of I'll put them I'll put one on social media actually um, of the earthquake and the live pictures of the bell tower and the ceiling of the basilica f- falling and it was I said to you earlier it was like those pictures you saw of the twin towers falling when um, obviously the first kind of impact had hit um, and then I don't know how many hours it was later but everyone was sort of looking up at the the basilica and the tower and it just crumbled and everyone just had their head in their hands. Or Notre Dame uh, yeah. as well, a few years ago. Um, I noticed you have adopted the northern pronunciation of Assisi. Uh, I prefer the southern Assisi. I prefer the southern <laughs> pronunciation. <laughs> and that ties in with a, a question that we're going to hear in a moment, actually. But first of all, a couple of things, <clears throat> a couple of headlines from today. Um, the first and most important one is that 600 COVID tests were carried out on everyone 
in the Giro, the riders and team staff, all negative, um, which is good news and maybe surprising news given um, how many positive cases there have been at bike races in the yeah, last few months. The, the case numbers in Italy have plunged and every reason we've talked before the Giro about this traffic light system, every region apart from the Val, Val d'Aosta which we spoke about the other day the smallest region in Italy right in the in the northwest corner is now yellow or white and the feeling is that every um, region is heading towards white status which basically means almost no restrictions. How's vaccination gone in Italy? Well pretty much the same as the rest of the EU. Um, I saw a statistic today which didn't look very good it was sort of 8% of the general population have been fully vaccinated I think 20% have received one dose um, but it's, it's accelerated quickly and there's definitely a sense of optimism. The curfew's being moved, Rich, in the coming days from 10 o'clock to 11 o'clock and there's a feeling that that's not going to last long either. It's probably going to be moved to midnight after that or maybe abandoned altogether. Another bit of good news uh, today, Quick Step of De Kuhn and Quick Step have extended their sponsorship for another six years. Uh, quite surprised by that because they've always seem to be on the, on the brink of pulling out or looking for additional support. No word on De Koenig. I mean, a few weeks ago, all the De Koenig quick step riders were out of contract at the end of the year. Now they've got Remco Evenepoel another five years, Julian Alaphilippe, Kasper Askreen, Michael Morkov has extended as well. Um, so very good news for that team. But strange that they're going to bail out um, just as Remco Evenepoel's reaching his peak. He'll be 27 yes. in yes. six years. Uh, but no, that's great, great news. Um, and a, it's a shame for uh, Pat, Patrick Lefebvre's Het Newsblad column uh, every every spring when he tends to complain I'm about sure. I'm not sure having. Patrick will find something. <laughs> He'll find something about. to complain about. <laughs> Although, inter- I, I did catch my eye that when one of his writers, Peter Serian, has been question about this in tonight's episode was knocked off his bike by the bike exchange team car I fully expected a flurry of angry tweets from Patrick Lefebvre and he was very quiet either he's been having media training or Matt White's got something on Patrick Lefebvre I I don't know Um, but I was surprised that Lefebvre kept very quiet on that Um, unusual um, for him another bit of business I neglected last night our friend friend of the podcast alan morgan got in touch to say that i had described simon carr the ef um writer as english when he actually is welsh mm-hmm. and i know that because i spoke to simon carr the other day and he told me that he he, he he hasn't lived in the uk at all i think he was born in england i believe i think he was born in england but he grew, at me, up, Rich. he grew up in Richardengo and in I'm south not, of I can't France. Have you out on this. And he, but I think his parents are Welsh. Anyway, he is Welsh. He said he was Welsh. So, uh, apologies, Alan. Alan Morgan is definitely Welsh. You can probably tell by the name. Um, so happy to to set the record straight there. Shall we dive straight into the well, questions, shall, Daniel? Uh, or we could dive straight else? in, or we could remind ourselves, Rich, of the last time the pod visited Assisi mm. which was a couple of years ago I wasn't there and um, this was and Lionel got in touch to ask is this where we were busted he said <laughs> busted sounds like you'd actually done something wrong well it's a it's a good opportunity to um, to check in with Lionel albeit you know retrospectively nostalgically I'm a card I remember well, we had a quite a dramatic morning, didn't we? Oh, yeah, I'd, I'd almost forgotten. Um, yeah, we were raided by the police. Well, we weren't raided well, by the, the police. The hotel was raided by the police. We, I came down to breakfast, Lionel was looking um, 
even more tense than usual. Yeah, I was really <laughs> tense. And, um, and he sort of started motioning towards a table in the corner, and there were about four or five people sat around the table, two of whom we'd met the previous night, they were the owners of our hotel, and, um, and, and one of the gentlemen who I didn't recognise then proceeded to come over, I thought he was going to ask me my thoughts on today's stage, um, how, I, <laughs> how I felt that Fabiaru was, was, was faring in the Giro so far, but no, he said, um, we think a crime has been committed, and then you two are witnesses, and you're going to have to give us a statement. I was very glad that he said witnesses are not suspects. Um, but it was it was a very tense morning, and I came down to breakfast a little bit before you, Daniel, and couldn't work out what was going on um, because basically they were saying we can't serve you breakfast at the moment. There's a problem. These gentlemen were in the reception and in the, the dining room area, and I wondered whether they were threatening the owners in some way. Obviously they were, but they were doing it in the spirit of law enforcement or crime investigation rather than sort of demanding money with menaces, which was my first instinct. Mobile phones were allegedly thrown out of windows this morning when the police arrived. Um, it, it's it's yeah. the biggest police raid at the Giro d'Italia since 2001 when riders and suitcases and syringes were were hurled out of windows or yeah yeah Um, amazing stuff but um, yeah it was quite unsettling but uh, not least because we were the only guests in the hotel I know and well last night we had trouble recording because uh, our equipment was buzzing there was a real horrible buzz on our equipment we had to kind of go old school and use just one handheld recorder of Italian cycling about 15 years ago we were being being tapped were we being bugged I mean was the room bugged was that was there electronic equipment in our hotel that was interfering with our recording equipment I don't know now I mean I who knows? I'm, I'm kind of half expecting to Google my name in about six months' time and find I've been cited in some kind of court case in uh, Perugia. Do you not Google your name every six days? <laughs> no, I certainly don't. Anyway, let's talk about cycling. The Giro d'Italia. Well, heady days. Oh, goodness. And, well, very different experience <laughs> this time around. Hearteningly, hearteningly, well, Lionel and I, after that incident, we did both expect at some point to be contacted by the police. It's and not possibly, too late. And possibly summoned yeah, to a season. People are wondering why Lionel well, isn't here. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm starting to have second thoughts about putting that video of us under the Basilica <laughs> of us easy out later, oh, just dear. in case any carabinieri are watching. Well, Daniel, let's go to our first question. Boom. In fact, let's hear two questions. Ciao ragazzi. My name is Andrew Bonacori from Stansted in the UK. Just one question. What does the Giro have against the south of Italy? And in particular, what does it have against Napoli? Keep up the good work, guys. Thanks as always. Greetings, Richard and Daniel. My name is Giolo Priato, American expatriate, now resident in Sicily, good friend of the cycling podcast and a proud owner of a commemorative tea towel. Thanks. I couldn't help but notice that this year's Giro is the third consecutive edition and the fourth in five years to start inside Italian territory. With pro cycling's increasingly eco-conscious focus to say nothing of the travel restrictions introduced as a result of the COVID pandemic, are we finally witnessing the end of the bloated spectacle of the foreign grande partenza? In my opinion, these extravaganzas on foreign soil do little to advance the race narrative, presumably require a ton of logistical planning to execute, and contribute to rider fatigue before the race has even truly gotten underway. Can we all finally say that enough is enough, or should I just resign myself to the fact that the 2024 Giro d'Italia is absolutely, positively, 100% going to start in Reykjavik? Well, thanks for your questions, Andrew. 
um, who asked, what does the Giro have against the south of Italy and Napoli in particular, and Joe, an American in Sicily? Well, this has long been a bone of contention. We mentioned the other day that it took an eternity for the south of Italy to produce a, a Giro champion. The first one really from south of, well, what they call the Mezzogiorno, the midday, that the midway line in Italy was Danilo Di Luca in 2007. And even he was from a central region. He was from Abruzzo. And thereafter, Vincenzo Nibli won the Giro, of course. But the, the south has not produced much. He doesn't, you know, it hasn't held that many races over the years, not many not many teams and you know we've talked before a lot in the pod about the economic disparity between the north and the south the north is a lot richer than the south money is a huge part of it because um you know it costs a lot to hold the giro um well i'll I'll move on to that in a minute exactly how much it does cost but in terms of public money being apportioned to holding the giro i think it's harder to it's much harder to justify for places where as i say there isn't that necessarily that cycling um heritage um that said the the giro did start in naples quite recently in 2013 it started in naples the former giro did mark cavendish win that stage yes i think he did um and the former Giro director, long-time Giro director, Carmine Castellano, who was Giro director from, was it 1990 or 89, to up until um, 2011, 10 or 11. Um, he was from Sorrento, just just south of Naples. So um, I don't think he had any inherent um, northern bias or bias against the south. The practicalities of it, the, G- the Giro has to use, has to go to the Dolomites and the Alps um, f- to find its mountain stages. Then if you factor in a grande partenza somewhere, often abroad in recent years, then what does that leave? It leaves about a week and a half in which, uh, you know, in which time you've got to cover other regions that have ponied up money um, and you've got to give some sort of or semblance of a, of a comprehensive journey around Italy, go down the peninsula and back up again. So th- there often isn't that much sort of time and space. I say the Giro has to use the Alps and Dolomites. There have been years like 2009, the, the centenary Giro, um, when it was well dubbed an upside down Giro because it started in the north and the Alps and the Dolomites and then it went down to mountains and it's sort of conclusive mountains were in the south and the center and people did not like it they um, they really took exception to that and it was seen as a sort of failed experiment that wouldn't be repeated um, other issues poor roads is a problem and again that comes money comes into that because a lot of the money that's that's put up for the Giro has to be spent on or as well as what's paid to RCS, the race organiser, local authorities have to get the roads in order. Um, and, and on that cost, it's in the interest of RCS, the, the Giro organiser, to basically auction the start to foreign cities because, you know, that opens their market to innumerable cities around the world. And obviously that adds to competition so much so that when, so the Giro has tried to not alternate like the Tour de France does, but at least have um, a Giro Grande Partenza every, if not every two years, then certainly pretty regularly. And if you just look at the figures, um, in Sardinia, for example, in 2017, um, Sardinia paid about 2.5 million euros. 
Budapest last year in 2020 was supposedly paying 10 million euros. So there's a huge difference between what RCS gets from Italian cities and what it gets from foreign cities. And then that then has a, a knock-on effect on what RCS can do, how well organised the race is. And um, I think spectators ultimately, you know, you can say that it's bloated and environmentally, ecologically, it's um, questionable to have these grandi partense abroad. But if they weren't getting those big fees in from places like Budapest and Belfast, then you would see that you would see it impact the, the race generally. Um, the, the, the Jira would just be shorter of money. Linked to this, kind of, Daniel, we had a very interesting email from uh, Kirsten Borsch, I think her, is how you pronounce her surname, German listener. Um, it's not really a, a question, in fact, I think she's, she started off um, with a question but en- ended up answering it herself. But it was a very interesting email, so thanks for that, Kirsten, about the the Giro and the, the sense of journey on the Giro compared to the Tour, where the Tour de France there's a more natural and the Tour de France from its very early days you know, went round the perimeter of the country the, it's a grand boucle isn't it? And, it and and the Giro doesn't lend itself geographically to that that same type of journey um, she had problems she said with the, the Giro's dramaturgy or maybe even more its character of voyage um, and uh, it was a very very interesting email I mean you've spoken about this before about the, the challenges of Italy's geography in, in designing a route that that, that links everything up. I mean, we're we're near Perugia. The stage starts there tomorrow. In all, in the years of covering the Giro, I've never been to Perugia with the Giro, and it's a pretty major city in Umbria. Yeah, I think with the Tour de France, people think of the stages in three categories. They're either Alps, Pyrenees, or or something else. Or, I mean. You've also got the version of Massive Central, um, so maybe you could say four categories. It's Alps, it's Pyrenees, it's Medium Mountains, or it's the rest. And the rest, as far as most people are concerned, looks pretty similar, feels pretty similar. Um, and you can almost, I think people almost switch off from the point of view of absorbing, you know, landscape, culture, whatever. Whereas in Italy, you know, we go on and on about it, but from region to region, there are massive contrasts. And maybe because of that, if you are, if you've got 21 stages and every day there's there's a different landscape, a different language in some cases, a different feel, then maybe that's quite disorienting. It's, it, you know, it's glorious for us, and and hopefully, you know, that's what we try to do with the podcast. We try to convey some of those sort of changing seasons, feelings. Well, to finish Kirsten's point and her email. Um, she said that she had a bit of a, a light bulb moment, an epiphany when the when we revealed our our name for for this Giro, the Giro Vagando. Um, in addition to the interesting insights of John Foot, she says a not so linear route with its stages everywhere made totally sense for me. Now I can step out of my train, which is how she described the Tour de France, and totally embrace the Giro, Giro Vagando. Thus, I don't have a question for you anymore, but I still wanted to write to you and thank you for answering my not posed question. Rich, just a final point on the foreign starts. Um, I forget which one of our listeners was it who suggested Reykjavik. We might be going to Reykjavik with the Giro. That was Joe. Uh, that was Joe. Well, I would welcome that. I'd be very happy to go to Reykjavik. Of course, our friend uh, Leonardo 
Pichon. He lives, he lives in he lives in Husavik in, He's a member uh, of in Iceland. Ross. So we'd be on home turf for him. Um, but foreign starts, just a history of foreign starts. You know, this is it's not a new invention. There've been more of them recently, but um, the first one for the Giro was. Would you know where it was? San Marino. Is, oh. it, is it really a foreign start? 1965. The, 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 it started in Belgium in 1973. Three. There were two before that. So San Marino in 65, and the following year was Monaco. And the Vuelta. So I mean, the Tour San de France, Marino isn't really a f- not really. start, is it? No. San Marino have done very well on COVID recently. And yes, they have no cases since, I don't know, on no May or, uh, uh, end uh, of April. Uh, end of April. Um, first Tour de France foreign start was Amsterdam in 1954. First Vuelta, 1997. Do you know where that was? Lisbon. Holland. Lisbon. Yeah. Oh, well. There you go. Still guessing on fueling. Not sure what or when to eat and drink on rides that matter? Never again. Optimize your fueling strategy with real-time glucose data, actionable insights, and personalized analytics. We're here to help you achieve your performance goals. Go to supersapiens.com for more on how to track your energy levels and fuel for success. The Cycling Podcast Powered by Super Sapiens. My name is Kevin Sprouse. I'm a sports medicine physician, head of medicine for EF Nippo Pro Cycling. And I also have a practice called Podium Sports Medicine in the U.S. One of my other positions is I'm a scientific advisor for Super Sapiens. I started using continuous glucose monitors like this with my patients five or six years ago across numerous sports. And what I saw is that having this novel insight into... Uh, metabolism was something that allowed us to stop guessing in so many areas of of health and training. And in my experience with it, I saw that it would be a massive benefit to professional athletes, recreational athletes, those that are just looking to optimize their health and performance. And so when Super Sapiens came around and took that technology that was previously very focused toward diabetics and patients who had a certain diagnosis and they take it and they put it in the realm of those that uh, don't have this diagnosis, who just want to use the same data for, for health and performance, that really resonated with me. It was something that I was doing anyway, but kind of using a technology that hadn't quite been tailored to this purpose. And now Super Sapiens has come along and really made it uh, pertinent, uh, easy to understand, and and very usable for the athlete. Thank you very much indeed to Super Sapiens. And if you would like to enter our competition to win three months of Super Sapiens sensors, uh, go to thecyclingpodcast.com and you can find out there how to um, send us in your audio clip or your video clip telling us how and why you would use Super Sapiens to help you achieve your cycling ambition. Let's hear from Keith Martin. I was reading a little bit more about Caleb Ewan this week after his wins and saw that his dad used to be a competitive cyclist. It got me thinking about how, you know, the old adage, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. I was wondering about Daniel's interrogation of Caleb and wondering Given his love of cycling and clear love of geography, is there anything there to do with the fact that his mum was both a PE teacher and a geography teacher? Hmm, interesting. Well, Daniel did laugh at that 
Caleb Ewan's mother is a geography teacher. He didn't mention that, did he? No, no, that's good. Um, <laughs> of course, good. Pog's mum... And thanks for doing our research for us, Keith. <laughs> of course, Pog's mum, Tade Pogacar's mum, is a French teacher. Um, and my parents are both PE teachers. Um, wow. One of, or my dad qualified as a PE teacher. My, my mum was a teacher as well. Yeah, there, there we, we go. go. Let's go to John Eddy. Hi, guys. It's John from the UK. Um, I'm sure you're going to get a lot of these, but it's a question about vehicles in the convoy, particularly cars, um, after the really bad incident with Peter Seri the other day. It reminded me of the, the really great Flanders documentaries that the Tour of Flanders put out for the last few years. And the in-car footage seems extraordinarily close to really quite bad peril a lot of the time. So what can be done? I think, you know, for a start, just having drivers whose only job is to drive and focus on the road seems like a first step. But how can we avoid potentially even worse incidents from happening in the future? Well, John, this is obviously a very live topic, uh, vehicles in the convoy. And there was the Peter Seri incident last week where um, the, the car driven by Gene Bates at Bike Exchange um hit him and uh, he fell pretty pretty heavily but he's okay and seems to be riding pretty well after that but to be perfectly honest we'll hear from James Knox in a moment on this subject for, uh, James has answered a few of your questions so we'll hear him throughout tonight's episode um, I'm amazed it doesn't happen more often and John you mentioned the Flanders documentaries and you can see in there uh, how chaotic the convoy is um, how fast the cars go, um, how close they are to each other, how close they are to the riders as well coming back through the convoy. Um, I think some teams have sort of addressed this, including actually bike exchange, because Matt White used to drive the car fairly regularly. He doesn't anymore. And he's the lead sports director and he is on the radio talking to the riders. Gene Bates is really just there as a driver, really, although he is a sports director with the team too. It was just a very unfortunate accident. You know, it wasn't deliberate. It wasn't, um, you know, it, it wasn't malicious. It was a, a very unfortunate accident. And I am amazed it doesn't happen more often, if I'm honest, because it's a dangerous place. Yeah, and of course, the rules on driving, who drives, how they drive, what qualifications they have to drive were changed, revised and toughened up quite considerably after um, Antoine de Moitier's death in 2016 Gent when he, he was hit by a race motorbike and that's when a lot of the r- rules came in about direct support teams not having TV monitors or, or not driving themselves if they are the first director Well let's hear what James Knox had to say about the convoy as well It is dangerous, there's a lot going on but the drivers are incredibly skilled, I don't think you can imagine driving around flooring it 60, 80k an hour, 100k an hour to get up to the back of the bunch to, to feed or get anything to your riders, but also checking your wing mirrors all the time. To, are the riders coming any left? Are they coming right? Because we can be a bit useless as riders, you know, not always just passing on the left like we should do. <sighs> so much going on. I think, you know, they all are such extremely skilled drivers, but mistakes are bound to happen. Just, that, you know, bike riders in the race are extremely skilled bike racers but we still do crash i'm not even sure having dedicated drivers would change anything you know every car in the convoy here has got two drivers i'm pretty sure but there's bigger issues with cars motorbikes passing the the peloton there are 
you know, have had a couple of accidents this year, but by and large, hugely successful part of the sport, isn't it? You know, convoy of 40, 50 cars, whatever, following the race that negotiate a lot very, very well. The Cycling Podcast at the 2021 Giro d'Italia is supported by Science in Sport. Science in Sport, fueled by science. Thanks very much indeed to Science and Sport for supporting the Cycling Podcast. If you would like 25% off your Science and Sport products, go to scienceandsport.com and enter the code SISCP25, SISCP25. Also, if you'd like to enter our Super Sunday competition, um, predict the winner of Sunday's stage and be in with a chance of winning £80 worth of Science and Sport goodies, go to thecyclingpodcast.com to enter that competition. Let's hear from Rob Tooley. Hi guys, Rob from Pool in Dorset here, and I've got a question about how different riders seem to have different reactions to adverse weather. Perhaps I've been labouring under the misapprehension that riders become adapted to the climate that they train in. Uh, so when the first week of this Giro saw some fairly inclement weather, I expected to see two of the GC hopefuls, Simon Yates and Hugh Carthy, thrive as I presume that they'd have grown up experiencing more than their fair share of cold wet rides. Instead we've seen riders from warmer climbs flourish and I wondered if it'd be fair to say that the ability to ride well in difficult conditions is just a case of the luck of the draw in physiological terms. Interested to hear your thoughts. Thanks for your question Rob. We'll hear James Knox on this in a moment. Um, he's obviously he grew up in uh, in uh, Cumbria in the Lake District where it's not great weather um, but he's been struggling he has been living in Girona for a few years so maybe he's adapted the other way but I don't know I mean um, I, I think that one of the famous examples of very inclement weather was the World Championships in Harrogate a couple of years ago and won by Mads Pedersen one of the reasons given for that was that he still lives and trains in Denmark where it is cold and he's a big big rider with maybe more body fat than other riders not, I'm not saying he's fat. Well, it's sometimes it's a difficult one to predict. Fat shaming, <laughs> It's a difficult one to predict and understand, isn't it? Because sometimes there is no rhyme or reason, or apparently there isn't any. Um, I always think back to the great rivalry dichotomy between um, Armstrong and Ulrich, um, where Ulrich was someone who thrived in the heat on very hot days. He generally performed very well. And Armstrong, most famously in 2003, when it was very, very hot, really, really suffered. And always his his phrase, um, the way he explained it was, I always ran hard. I always ran hard, man. Um, but why that was, we don't really know. I mean, thermoregulation is quite a hot topic in sports science, and it's related to things like hydration. It's related to things like rest. And I think... Well, Rich, you're there with your whoop. Um, I think uh, sleep is going to be a big, you know, it's a big sort of new next frontier in performance analysis. And I think from what I, I've heard and read, sleep has quite a big, big effect on thermoregulation. Oh, really? Yeah. Uh, one thing that occurred to me the other day when we had a very cold and wet day, it might have been the stage that Joe Dombrowski won, um, that beautiful bells, oh, aren't they? Beautiful sound effect. Ah, yeah. wonderful. Um, but the... In, you had quite a big bunch and you had Ineos Grenadiers working on the front and a lot of riders sitting by and I thought in, a, in conditions like that you're actually better off working and, and putting out some effort because the guys sitting behind are um, 
you know, doing less and, and likely to get colder, I think. And so in those conditions, it almost seems to me that you would be better off um, instructing your riders to, to go at the front and ride. Clothing is another massive topic. Uh, I was speaking to a director sportive the other day after a cold stage here who said that his team had changed clothing manufacturer this year because they weren't necessarily that happy with you know how warm the clothing was keeping the riders or, or not. And that was a big, yeah, it was probably the main motivation for them to look for someone else. We've always thought in the past, uh, or we've often thought that it comes down to money, um, you know, who, who supplies clothing to a team but apparently not let's hear what james knox has to say on this uh question of riding cold conditions we're in umbria umbria not cumbria as the saying goes good question but case in point i'm pretty terrible so yeah i don't think it's helped uh ridden around in wet cold rainy cumbria enough but yeah it doesn't seem to help me very much although i'm not there too much now. I mean, I think just because I'm small, I get cold easier, which some people don't haven't agreed with. But that logic seems to make sense in my head. I'm pretty sure there must be some genetic something where some guys can push through or aerobically aren't affected by the cold because there does seem to be something. Um, and then obviously there's clothing and clothing choices that make a difference for all those things. But yeah, I don't think we've seen any massive differences for that so far in the Giro. A couple of the big GC guys have complained about it, but I think from the top top guys we've seen, everyone's just gone with it. So yeah, not really that it's not an excuse, but yeah, unfortunately, it's part of the game, isn't it? So yeah, not much you can do. Hi Rich and Daniel, it's Timo from Germany. My first question is not Chiro related. Um, I just wonder if Julian Alaphilippe will regret in the future that he's decided not to compete in this year's Olympic road race. And what are your thoughts on his decision? My second question is on Chai Hindley and Chao Almeida, two of the big stars of last year's Chiro. They are both struggling this year and are currently in 23 and 26 position. Are they just both coincidentally in bad form or is the level of this year's Giro, especially with Evenepoel and Bernal just on another level? Thanks for your questions, Tino. Will Julian Alaphilippe regret not doing the Olympic road race? Well, I think, I think he's partly missing it in order to be present at the birth of his child. Yeah, I, I think I, that's a big motivation from what I can gather. He did say, I looked back at the, the quote from four days ago, and he did use the word private. He did talk about private reasons as well as hmm. um, professional reasons. Um, I Also, just if you look at the date, um, if, he, if he does have any designs on retaining his rainbow jersey, then it's gonna, it would be very tricky, I think. Um, the dates... Of the what well, would you the rather win, race. the Olympic road race or the World Championship? I don't really like the Olympics. I think I'd rather win the World Championship. Yeah. I think the wearing the rainbow jersey is is a far more prestigious thing to I'm do not a big than Olympics guy. being Olympic champion. Mm. I agree. The, the, the Olympic road race, twenty fifth of July. World road race, twenty sixth of September. So it's a full two months later, and then Lombardy is the tenth of October. So you know. He'll want to come into the Tour de France in in good form. Um, you might say, well, it's no, it's only another week 
uh, or is it is it the? Week? I think the Olympics have different resonance in different countries. I think in 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 Britain, it's a big thing for British riders, and I don't, I think that's to do with the status of cycling in Britain. Yeah. Um. Whereas in the traditional cycling countries in France, Belgium, Spain, Holland, I think that there's more of an understanding there that the Olympics are not the absolute pinnacle. Yeah, it's it's always be, very big as well in former communist countries. And Timo's other question about Jai Hindley and Jao Almeida. I, I'm not sure Almeida is struggling now. I mean, he may have been a rider who struggled with the cold last week, but he seems to be going pretty well um, now. But I, 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 the thought has crossed my mind too. Um, you know, we heard from Jai Hindley in last night's episode, of course, and he's not been well. So it's it's hard to it's hard to compare. But I, part of me has wondered whether some of the results from last year that that strange condensed season might be seen as anomalous in the future yeah i also think that it was quite an anomalous giro which is not to take anything for away from the riders who excelled in last year's giro but if you look at the way it panned out um, and i'm thinking particularly about the the mountain stages or the gc stages or lack thereof in the first two weeks compared to this year the the okay the stage in etna it caused some damage not a massive amount stage camigliatello silano won by ganna Nothing happened really with the GC riders. Then there was the um, mountaintop finish at Rocarazzo again. Um, Guerrero won there. Nothing happened with the GC riders. Oh, I don't know. Teo Gegenhart might disagree with that. It, oh, he it, did. It was he a did fairly significant day. Yeah, he gained some time. Yeah. No, he did. He did. Yeah, Sorry, yeah. take that back. But um, the first two weeks were relatively quiet. And the, the thing that jumped out at a lot of people when this year's route was unveiled was the even distribution of big stages, GC days throughout the race. You might say that not that much has happened up until now, the first rest day, but um, it, there's enough for it to be quite a different race, I think. Let's go to Stephen. Hello, Richard, Daniel and Lionel. This is Steve from Montreal. I'm a new friend of the podcast. Thanks for the ongoing great coverage of the Giro. I uh, particularly enjoyed the recent stage finish at Campo Felice near Rocca di Cambio. The last time the Giro visited Rocca di Cambio, Paolo Tiralongo won the stage in 2012, and Canada's favorite son, Ryder Hesjedal, took the Maglia Rosa for the first time, which he would win outright two weeks later. This year, the race organizers added the very interesting gravel stretch up to Campo Felice, reflecting perhaps the trend and appeal of these unpaved segments in recent years. Do you think the increasing inclusion of gravel segments in Strade Bianche will see the emergence of a new type of rider specialist? Will we see the graveleur emerge? And what characteristics would such a rider have? Thanks for your question, Stephen. Thanks for being a new friend of the podcast. Very grateful for your support. We'll hear James Knox on this in a moment too. Um, and actually, tomorrow's episode of Kilometre Zero is all really all about this subject. It's uh, an interview with the Austrian interloper, Michael Gogol, who was in that all-star breakaway at Strade Bianchi in uh, March. Um, and tomorrow we've got the gravel stage, of course. We had a bit of gravel the other day as well. The graveler. Will that be a new category of rider along the puncher, gramper, graveler? I mean, 
we've spoken about this a little bit, haven't we? What 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 kind of rider does it does it suit? I mean, tomorrow's almost a climbing stage as well. Yeah, I mean, I spoke to Eros Capecchi, who's not at the Giro, but he is from well, he's from the Tuscany Umbria border. He lives on um, Lake Trasimeno, and so he knows these roads. He knows tomorrow's roads very well, and he he went to look at the route with Mikel Landa a few months ago, and he said it was it was borderline too dangerous. He thought some of the descents. Um, but do you know, Rich, maybe we should hear from Simon Yates because he had some fairly forthright opinions on this today. I would prefer not to have a stage like this in a, in a Grand Tour. I don't, and I believe, um, you know, there is a place for, for, for a race, a one-day race like Strada Bianchi. Um, but in a, in, a, in a stage race, I don't think it really has a, has a, has a place. There's too much risk involved. Um, you know, even the guys who are, who are technically good on the gravel and, um, not afraid of the gravel, they can still have a puncture or a crash, and, and it really just affects the, the GC. Um, but I think you know we have we have good good equipment, so um, for me it's not a, I'm not afraid of the stage. I just hope to 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 pass without incidents. What well, was Simon Yates echoing his sports director Matt White, who along with a lot of other uh, sports directors was away wrecking that stage again today. Um, we also put the question to James Knox. Um, what does he think about these gravel segments in Grand Tours especially? I don't know what I think of them, actually. Uh, I like the idea of tomorrow's stage, proper Strada Bianchi stage, but a couple of days ago just seemed like unnecessary. just seemed like it was the organisers trying pretty hard to put on a bit of a spectacle when, you know, if hard tarmac roads aren't enough, then what is enough? It will be a good show, obviously, but then part of me goes, you know, if if a big GC rider crashes out or a big GC rider punches and loses the race from there, you know, it's a a little bit of a cruel side of the sport that um, a rider's ambitions for the race are ruined because of uh, necessity to make the race extra difficult and extreme. So I'm a little bit torn because I can see that sat home it'd be entertaining. And does that suit a certain type of rider? You know, I think there's more and more of guys who've got cross backgrounds and mountain bike backgrounds in the sport. Certainly got an advantage, but in terms of uh, in terms of the effort, doesn't doesn't massively change anything. Um, and tomorrow's a hard stage, regardless of the gravel sections. So legs will matter more than the terrain, I would imagine, uh, or more than the the gravel, I'd imagine. Let's go to another question, Andy Baum. Hi guys, it's Andy here long-time listener and former good friend of the podcast. Uh, I will soon renew our friendship, uh, I promise. My question is around rider safety after a crash. We saw Mara Herich being offered a bike after his crash, and it seems like the TV viewer has more up-to-date visuals than the team cars. There surely needs to be a better way of detecting quickly how bad a crash has been and whether there's a potential concussion. Some manufacturers are developing helmet sensors, which seem like a good answer. What do you guys think? Loving the coverage as always. Thanks. Thanks for your question, Andy. Former good friend. Um, hope you deliver on the promise of renewing our friendship. And uh, if you do, thank you very much for that. And thanks very much for your question. Um, it's a it's a hot topic, isn't it? Rider safety after crashing, uh, especially concussion protocols. Um, Joe Dombrowski was forced to withdraw from the race, having suffered concussion in his crash. Um but we saw the, the horrible crash with Matty Marich the other day when he appeared to be encouraged almost to carry on. It's an interesting one, that, because 
We spoke to mechanics about this, and in these situations, mechanics job a mechanics job is not to assess the rider's health. The mechanics job is is to um, is to to make sure his bike's okay and to give him a new bike if necessary. Now, should that be you know, should the mechanic have a role in 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 this too? I'm not sure. Well, but when the UCI addressed this issue and, and introduced their new concussion protocol, they talked about training. Um, direct sportives in particular, didn't they? For mm. you know, giving them basic training about what they call SRCs, sports-related uh, concussion, um, and, and the new protocol. Um, I must admit, I read an interview with Mohoric, um done by Chiro, actually, in La Gazzetta, and it, it, the, the protocol was clearly applied there. Um, he talked in, in some detail about you know all the questions he was asked, and and you know. I think he had two lots of tests um, an hour or so apart, or an hour or so apart, and then I think as well the next day. And he was asked to. These are fairly standard tests, I think, when suspected concussion is involved. Um, he was given a series of words: ta taxi, suitcase, coffee, um, and and then he was asked to repeat them. I can't remember whether it was it a minute later. Or, so anyway, it sounded to me as though the the protocol had had very much been respected there, and. Um, he he didn't seem to have any effects of the concussion, um, and he was obviously saved by his helmet because he fell right down on his head. But he actually felt fine the next day. But you know, the the UCI when they released their protocol, they sort of spelled out what the problem was, and the problem that we we wrestled with during the Tour de France last year, when on I think it was stage thirteen, when Roman Bardet went down, and was it seen on live TV or was it a replay a few minutes later? But anyway, this sort of played out on television that he would, was sort of staggering around while his, his director sportif and mechanics were sort of fussing over him, trying to get his, find him a, a bike and get him back on his bike. And, and the race doctors came in for a lot of criticism. Uh, Florence uh, Pomery, the, the long-term... Tour de France doctor came in for a lot of criticism because Bardet went on to finish the stage and he probably shouldn't have. But but it was, the UCI have been at pains to stress that it is fundamentally quite difficult, particularly in stage races, because, you know, you take a decision there that there's, there's no going back from it. Yeah, concussion has been a, a very uh, live topic in cycling, hasn't it? And uh, one of the difficulties, and we've heard Ian Boswell on this in, in the podcast, um, is the difficulty in uh, e even the the initial diagnosis can be can be wrong, and and it's it's concussion is is deeply personal to everybody who suffers it. Lizzie Banks um, crashed at Strada Bianca in March, hasn't raced since, and she's had a lot of problems overcoming that. Um, uh, you know, a relatively, you know. Moritz's crash was really spectacular, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it was worse than a relatively minor fall. Um, the effects on the on the brain don't seem always to be commensurate to the the impact, even. And there is a lot of talk, um, as Andy mentioned, then of helmets, devices in helmets being developed. Most of the advancements, well, all of the advancements, on, I think, on this front are coming from the, the NFL because it's a huge issue there because of the um, well the revelations about CTE um, which is a real challenge to pronounce chronic traumatic and en encephalopathy encephalopathy which is 
basically the brain injury. If it was an Italian word, you'd yeah, be fine. The brain injury, brain degeneration, which can occur as a result of one or multiple um, concussions, and and the symptoms, the the after effects, repercussions of that can be well, they can range from personality changes or disorders to um, dementia, and I think it's pretty well publicised that the issues the NFL has been having with that. But there are some there are some encouraging developments there. The NFL is looking at a, a technology called Nomo, which um, a device which incorporates electroencephalography Lopography. Um, basically, it's a device which tells you, um, you know, if the if the impact is likely to have caused concussion or will have caused concussion. There were there were devices like this or more basic rudimentary devices being tried a few years ago. Accelerometers were were the subject of research in the NFL with football helmets but they didn't work very well and those experiments I think were discontinued so cycling will probably whatever does come about in cycling will probably happen uh, a year or two after the NFL but hopefully um, something something will appear on this front should we hear from our other audio diarist Gino Mader teammate of Moharic we should because Gino was in very close proximity when that awful crash happened Gino here from the rest day and it is again uh, a beautiful day and actually I'm really really glad it's a rest day because the last 10 days of racing they they asked a lot not only from the body but also mentally because losing losing Mikel so early in the race and then also losing Mate on Sunday it's really really a shame and it does change everything for our team to lose uh, to lose Mate. He was a super road captain and he was such an important, if not the most important rider in in pursuing, well, my stage win, but also in making sure that our captain is always staying near the front. So to not having having him in the race anymore is just a really huge loss. And yeah, luckily, Luckily, I didn't see the crash um, during the race, but Caruso did, and all all he was able to think about was just this image of Mate, toe overhead, flying through the air, and we didn't know what exactly uh, happened to Mate during the race, so we were all really worried, and yeah, it was difficult to, to keep on concentrating on the race because obvious that the image was shocking um luckily not so much for me because i was ahead of him and when i when i'm looking back after the corner everything i see is just him being down and obviously i was just thinking he slipped but i was so much more than this um but on a positive note caruso is doing absolutely fantastic and He's a he's an incredible figure in the team as well, and we still have six quality riders in the race, which which is going to help us the next two weeks. And yeah, it's eleven days uh, spiked with with mountains, and obviously me losing the blue jersey on on Sunday wasn't wasn't exactly a highlight, but to have had it for uh, for actually quite a long time was really enjoyable and 
made that I want more of it. Obviously, it's a, it's still a long, long way to go and a lot of mountains to come, which brings me well to the mountains, to to the beauty of it. I mean, yeah, mountains. It's just it's something so nice. It's something so peaceful, but still, it's such a harsh world and spending a lot of time there and I'd wish to be able to spend more time in the mountains and to just enjoy pure nature. When you when you conquer a summit and when when you stand on top of a mountain, it's just so pure. That's uh, that's what I love about and being Swiss, having the Alps. Yeah, one of the most beautiful countries due to the mountains. It's just a privilege and obviously obviously you feel connected to them uh, even though I live in Zurich now <laughs> in the flatland and not having a lot of mountains around me and not having a lot of a lot of this freedom that they provide you it's just a different world it's so much more peaceful and I I honestly just love it and to have the chance to now fight for the blue jersey for the for the best climbers uh, is a privilege and it makes me feel really really motivated for the next um, 11 stages and gives you a massive goal in mind and a huge chance lovely little whimsical um detour there from gina gina is really getting with the the program the cycling podcast program becoming more and more whimsical just talking about the mountains there his relationship with the mountains you know as a as a Swiss, um, born in Bern, surrounded by some of the most famous mountains in Europe. But Rich, we were talking earlier and Gino said there that one of the reasons why he wants to win the blue jersey, the mountains jersey, is this relationship he has with the mountains. We were saying that the blue jersey, it's certainly not iconic. I mean, the colour changed a few years ago because it was a new sponsor of that jersey. And of all the Grand Tours, the Jira really should have an, an iconic mountains jersey and it should have the most iconic mountains competition and the Giro to my mind should be the first of the Grand Tours to take this risk which one of the Grand Tours should already have taken of completely changing the model of the mountains competition and it should be time based and we've been saying this for three or four years now and it should incorporate you know a partnership with someone like Strava or Zwift or or someone like that and um, I think it can work um, you know people will have what colour should it be what colour should it be? Well, it's a bit late now because these things, they rely on history and heritage. Yeah, and, you know, ideally it would have 100 years of history behind it. But uh, what colour should it be? A rusty orange colour. I think dolomites, Oof. I think, are kind of that kind of hazy glow that sometimes you yeah, get in, possibly, the, in those Yeah, possibly, possibly. Or, I mean... Maybe yeah, we should we should ask know, where, where, for listener suggestions I mean, the, the, on the this. The polka dot jersey in the King of the Mountains jersey in, in the Tour de France was only introduced in the seventies, relatively recently, and it was greeted with derision initially. Um, but now it, it it really is iconic, isn't it? And and nobody would think about changing that. So I don't think it's too late. And I think almost the more radical, the better. The more wacky, the better, because then it would. I think you know, as we see, even with a race like Strada Bianca, if something's good, it can be it can become part of the landscape of the sport relatively quickly. So it has to be something completely different, doesn't it? It has to be a new design, a new color, something that doesn't exist anywhere else in the sport. No, I don't know what the hell tie dye. Well, I think that's been done, hasn't it? Um, oh god, tartan maybe. Tartan. 
Now you're talking. <laughs> now you're talking. There must be some link with Dolomites in um, Scotland. Um, yeah, I mean, possibly. I, what possibly. I was suggesting I was almost a kind of iron brew colour for the quoted, jersey. There was a writer, 19th century yeah, writer, I remember you, who penned yeah, some, was yeah. it Ro- Robertson? Yeah, I remember you quote um, him in your book. Wrote some some of the sort of seminal works on About travel the in the Dolomites. Dolomites, like coral reef, yes. and, and being buffeted by the sea and worn down yes. over centuries. A fantastic quote. Um, well, tart, a tartan King of the Mountains jersey, why not? You heard it here first. Daniel, we should go and have dinner. Let's go and have some strangozzi or picci or whatever. We still haven't got to the bottom, bottom of the, the dis- distinctions between these long pastas in central Italy, but we will endeavour to do that over the next day or two. And tomorrow we're in Montalcino. We're back on the winery tomorrow. Yes. And gravel. Do you like Do you like gravel? We didn't really answer the question about whether we like I don't really understand it. Or... Do they, does it make you sad? If, it probably if will make me sad tomorrow when one of the contenders, you know, sort of limps over the line, covered in filth and dust, f- three hours after Egan Bernal. <laughs> and um, well, yeah. Bernal rode extremely well. We were reminding ourselves how how well he rode at Strada Bianca in in March. Finished third, didn't he? Yeah, I I was actually in on Bernal's video conference this morning, and he said that the key thing tomorrow is going to be positioning. And that is going to be more important than how well someone climbs or descends. The, the positioning at the start of the sectors, and I think um, Gianni Moscon and Filippo Ganna to a point until Ganna is shelled on the big climb, which he probably will be, um, they will play a key role. I think um, I, I was. I got a message on Twitter from somebody, but I've been thinking it myself that um, to d- tomorrow and it's Andy. Don't know your surname, Andy. Sorry, but. Um, uh, tomorrow is is a day for Alberto Bettiol, who we've been saying is in fantastic form. Bettiol's got to be Bettiol's stage. I think Jenny Moscon, if if he's given um, the you know the permission to to go for the stage, I think he's in great form as well. And it should be they're very similar riders, Moscon and Bettiol. Wouldn't be surprised to see them coming together. And I think Ineos Grenadiers should allow their ride, a rider like him to, to to have a go. It it didn't do them any harm last year at the Giro. Um, Maybe uh, who else? Who else could be up there? I'd, another name was on my on the front of my brain, but it's disappeared. On, what the only name on my lips, on my mind, it, with regard to tomorrow's stage is Brunello di Montalcino. <laughs> <laughs> okay. On a, on that note, let's go. Thank you, Daniel. Thank you. Yeah.